spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is a short side episode, Building Quickly. Having seen how the pharaoh of Egypt, Akhenaten, established his new royal residence, the city of Amarna, it's worth looking at how that city itself was constructed. Not the monuments or houses, but rather the building blocks, the materials that artisans and labourers used to raise the mighty structures. Today, we take the 99% invisible route, examining things you may not think about, but which played a massive role in shaping the city which Akhenaten and his people inhabited. This episode is brought to you by Linda and Seymour, my priest-level supporters on Patreon. Linda, Seymour, you rock. Thank you for your generosity. I hope this small episode goes some way to paying my debt. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me, and on with the show. The year was 1357 BCE, approximately. Across the landscape of Amana, or Aket Aten, horizon of the Aten, thousands of workers toiled to construct a vast array of structures. Temples, palaces, shrines, houses, and workshops rose from the desert sands, all shaped by the hands of labourers, stonemasons, foremen, and overseers. They worked quickly, perhaps urgently. Pharaoh's demands were great, and over the course of just a few years, they accomplished a remarkable feat, raising a city where none had been before. How did they do this, and how did they do it so quickly? Last time, we got introduced to a man named Hatiai. Hatiai held the title of Emira Ka'u, or Overseer of the Works. Hatiai was perhaps the chief organiser of construction work in the city of Amana, and his role is central to this episode. Even though he doesn't appear physically, Hatiai would have been one of the men organising the thousands of labourers who helped to raise the city. The work that he and his colleagues did is quite noteworthy, but this episode is dedicated to the anonymous people, the men, and perhaps women, who helped to construct the monuments and raise the city as we know it. The cityscape of Amarna appeared in an incredibly short space of time, all things considered. In terms of work, building this city was easily as difficult and impressive as raising a pyramid, 
and the workers should be commended for what they achieved, given the resources that they had. What made this speed and scale possible was a variety of innovations in building practice. Akhenaten's masons and labourers were quite inventive in how they met their pharaoh's demands. One of the most distinctive features of Akhenaten's reign is the type of building blocks used by his workers. The monuments which this king built are, in their basic construction, quite different from those of other periods. Previously, pharaohs had commissioned temples and monuments in the traditional style of Egyptian architecture, immense slabs of limestone, sandstone, granite, etc. Those blocks which could weigh tons by themselves were incredibly useful, but they weren't suited for a regime that wanted scale and speed together. Akhenaten's stonemasons were quite innovative in how they tackled the pharaoh's demands. Most notably, they stopped using that older style of blocks and switched to a new type of piece. These new bricks were much smaller, about 52 centimetres long, or 20.5 inches. This length is the same as three hands placed side by side, and because of that number, three, the blocks came to be known by the Arabic word for three, talata. So today, we call the blocks of Akhenaten talatat blocks. They are quite distinctive and worth talking about briefly. Talatat blocks tend to be about 52 centimetres long, 25 centimetres wide, and 23 centimetres thick. That's 20.5 by 10 by 9 inches. Which means that talatat are relatively small by Egyptian standards. And most importantly, they are portable. A single man can lift a talatat block by himself and carry it from a quarry to a building site. He didn't need assistance, and apart from the basic work of excavating them, then decorating them, a single talatat was relatively simple to produce. Compare that to the older, monumental size blocks which other pharaohs had used. Those enormous pieces needed whole teams to carve and remove them from the quarry, followed by dozens of men or oxen to haul them over the ground. Those big blocks were time-consuming and expensive. Apparently, Akhenaten wanted something a little quicker. From the very beginning of his reign, Akhenaten's monuments start to show the Talatat blocks as a basic feature of their construction. This is true for the monuments at Amarna, but also for the king's earlier projects at Karnak, and even for his structures in Memphis and down in Nubia. It's possible that when Akhenaten first took the throne, he was so anxious to get started and make his mark that he demanded his monuments be erected much faster than usual. It's hard to explain the Talatat any other way. They are an unusual change from the standard practice. And even though Akhenaten is known for changing things, this one is a pretty random change to adopt. Whatever his logic, the smaller Talatat blocks were used on pretty much every monument he commissioned. They are a distinctive mark of Akhenaten in any archaeological site. The Talatat are the major distinction of Akhenaten in an architectural sense. But the monuments at Amarna also show other changes in standard practice. We're going to quickly explore how the masons built the many structures that litter the landscape of the city. To construct a large building at Amarna, the workmen would first remove the topsoil and dig a shallow pit, 
covering the entire area of the extended structure. This pit was the base for the building's foundations, and in order to make the area stable, the Egyptians poured a rudimentary type of concrete into the space. This concrete was made of gypsum, a soft powdery mineral that can be heated and mixed with water to form a type of plaster. We actually still use this plaster today, it's called plaster of Paris. The Egyptians mixed this gypsum plaster with sand and loose bits of stone, probably the chippings or waste from limestone and sandstone quarries. Mixing shards of stone with the plaster, the ancients made a basic type of concrete, which they spread out to fill the foundations of a structure. Once the gypsum concrete had set, hardening into a stable material, the architects would plan out the building on top of it. They would draw lines of string, stained red with ink, across the site, snapping that string against the ground to set the basic lines of orientation. Sometimes they scratched shallow grooves into the plaster, forming rough lines that are still visible in the archaeology today. With this combination of methods, the architects would orient their buildings according to basic right angles and lines. They didn't do the best job, to be honest. Many of the Amarna buildings are slightly wonky or out of line. This wasn't like the Giza pyramids. Akhenaten's builders were working quickly. Exactitude and strict orientations were a luxury they did not indulge. Once the gypsum concrete was set and the lines of building were drawn, the men got to work laying down the bricks. First, they strengthened the building lines with an extra layer of gypsum. They spread this in narrow bands where the bricks would go. Then, they took their talatat and began to lay them in rows, directly on top of the plaster. The result was a wall that, before it even started, had been set upon two layers of reinforced mineral concrete. A good beginning. The bricks were stacked up, one on top of the other, and you might assume that this part of the process was relatively simple. Mark an area, fill it with bricks, keep on moving. But even here, the builders continued to innovate. In the spirit of haste, of speed, they used a couple of clever little shortcuts to get their buildings finished on time. First of all, the walls of Amana were often hollow at the base. The builders didn't make the first layer of bricks a solid mass of talatat. Instead, they laid out rows around the exterior of a wall, then filled in the gap with another layer of gypsum concrete. Basically, the Egyptians figured that they could save time and perhaps increase stability by having a strong foundation of plaster at the very base of the structure. This concrete was poured into the gap between bricks, and then the workers would lay talatat on top of that. In between, they poured sand. These building processes may sound complicated, but they're relatively simple. The Amarna buildings rose quickly because of a combination of innovative construction methods. The use of talatat blocks, smaller and more easily transported, allowed workers to move more building blocks more quickly. Then, the gypsum plaster mixed with bits of stone reinforced the foundations of walls, making structures more stable. Finally, clever mixtures of talatat and gypsum in the walls enabled the Amarna monuments to rise quickly, cleanly, and grandly. Put together, these innovations have had a lasting impact on the Amarna landscape. 
Although the temples were eventually torn down, their walls dismantled and the stones taken away, the gypsum foundations still survive to record where the structures were. Thanks to these innovations, Akhenaten's builders were able to create structures quickly on a grand scale and with a surprising amount of longevity given the place that they're located. They did good work, and I salute them. The builders of Aket Aten, thousands of anonymous labourers led by men like Hatiai, the overseer of works, constructed an immense grandiose cityscape. Acknowledging their work, we can see how a dedicated team working together created something incredibly impressive, and they did so in a short space of time. In order to build these vast monuments, the workers needed one thing above all. Well, two things. They needed stone for using in bricks, and they needed gypsum to mix together and make that versatile plaster concrete. Problem is, stone and gypsum don't grow on trees. So the labourers of Arket Aten had to go abroad in order to get their building material. The question is, where did they go? Archaeologists have surveyed the areas around Amana, and thanks to intensive searches, they have identified the places where Pharaoh's builders went to get the materials they needed. In chapter 2, we'll see how a dedicated group of men turned the hills and desert north of the city into something like a vast industrial mine. Digging for limestone and gypsum, a huge number of workers and their donkeys were able to acquire the materials they needed to make Amana rise. Along the way, they left traces of their activity and hints of their identity, including an unexpected connection to some of Egypt's oldest rulers and one of her greatest queens. That is chapter two, after the break. See you in a moment. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Superlight Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Once the move to Amana took place, Akhenaten's workers had to start organising materials for the construction. Building monuments was fine, but all the planning and innovation in the world wasn't going to help if the workers didn't have resources. Tools, wood for scaffolding, and above all, stone were vital to the success of the operation. In order to feed the city's insatiable appetite for stone, the overseers of works had to expand their horizon. The overseers, men like Hatiai, sent their teams far and wide. In particular, 
they sent the masons to a large stretch of limestone cliffs, just north of Amarna itself. Here, in a region stretching 15 kilometres north to south, Pharaoh's workers took their stone pounders, their hammers, and their chisels, and began to extract the blocks which the city of Amarna demanded. The hills north of Amarna are one of the city's unsung gems. Here, a set of cliffs and plateaus provide an incredibly rich source of limestone. This geological area, which formed around 50 million years ago in the Eocene, was abundant in building materials, and the Egyptian workmen exploited it for all it was worth. Most of Amarna's monuments are built on foundations of limestone, sourced from the hills and valleys north of the city. Here, the ancient quarries are still visible, and archaeologists surveying the area have found a huge amount of evidence for Akhenaten's workers. Some of these quarries were quite old, like Old Kingdom Old, and graffiti in the area points to activity dating all the way back to Khufu, builder of the Great Pyramid. Chances are, there is some Amarna limestone in the Giza monuments. That same limestone served Akhenaten for his immense projects. Along with the graffiti of Khufu, other markings in these quarries show cartouches of rulers covering a vast span of time. Cartouches of Pepi I and Pepi II from Dynasty VI, Sobek Hotep of Dynasty XIII, and even some of the Ptolemies, the Macedonian rulers who followed Alexander the Great. Put together, graffiti in these hills shows limestone quarrying covering more than 2,500 years of history. There are also written traces of the Amarna period, but they're not cartouches of Akhenaten. Surprisingly, the limestone quarries here show records of one name from the 18th dynasty. That name is Queen T. Among the hieroglyph carvings, a single cartouche gives the name of our great lady T, and it simply says, quote, The great king's wife, T, living forever. It seems that workers came here in her name specifically, and they recorded their activities as ones occurring under her authority, which is unexpected. Why would we find T's cartouche in the Amarna quarries, but not her son Akhenaten? The most likely explanation is that the workmen, the teams of labourers, who made this particular graffiti, were somehow connected with the Queen Mother. Perhaps they were part of her household, stonemasons on her payroll and employed in her name. Or perhaps the team was sent here to gather stone for a monument of tea, maybe one of the shrines at Amana, or some structure or statue not yet identified. Either way, it's a surprising occurrence, an Amarna-era quarry where workers extracted stone in the name of tea rather than Akhenaten. Whatever the reason, it's lovely to find tea here among such ancient company, and, on her own merits, no male attached. The workers of Amarna extracted their small, talatat-sized blocks from the limestone cliffs, which abound in this area. Each block, about 52 centimetres long, was removed in a rough form. Then, experienced masons would take chisels and flints and carve each block down to a smoother piece. Once that was done, the workers could prepare them for carriage back to the city. Transporting these stones wasn't as simple as we might expect. Traditionally, the Egyptians would load their huge slabs onto river barges, shipping them down the Nile to their construction sites. 
But the Amana workmen mostly didn't do that. Instead, it seems that most of the quarrymen loaded their talatat onto donkeys. The ancient quarrymen took their talatat blocks from the quarries to the north back to the city of Amana via roads. They used donkeys to carry the blocks along dirt paths, which left the quarrying sites and snaked up into the hills, skirting the cliffs before descending again into the plain of Amana. Archaeologists have identified these ancient roads with satellites and ground surveys, and their findings suggest that at least five different paths were operating in the area. With men and donkeys swarming over the quarrying region, this place must have been an absolute hive of hard-working activity. Archaeological surveys of these quarries and their road networks have really expanded our understanding of how big Amana actually was. When you just look at the city itself, it seems like an isolated community. But as we factor in the support facilities, the farmland, the villages, and the quarries, we see the city more and more in a wider context. It seems that the support network of Amana was huge, a hinterland stretching many kilometres north, west, and south. Workers, young and old, came from miles away, streaming into the quarries and construction sites, and helping to make Arket Aten what it was. The donkeys, loyal and placid, served as well. I think we can imagine a long train of men and animals making this journey, filling the hills above Amana with their traffic. Columns of men and donkeys, marching like ants, hauled their cargoes out of the quarries and up into the hills. Columns of workers and donkeys, marching like ants, hauled their cargoes out of the quarries and up into the hills. They skirted cliffs and crested the escarpments, coming high above the city on their regular routes. As they did this, the workers were probably treated to some spectacular views of the city, with the farmland and desert stretching far below. On a good day, with the Aten shining above and a cool breeze off the river, it may have seemed like a relatively decent life. I don't know about you, but I think these ancient networks are fascinating. The quarries and roads which fed Amana with resources may not seem so spectacular, but they are essential to understanding the ancient community. All of those grand monuments took far more labour and effort than a casual glance would suggest. Finding out where they got those materials is some of the coolest stuff around. The limestone quarries were not the only industrial zone next door to Amana. Above the cliffs, on the plateau which stretched away to the east, Egyptian workers were also extracting material from the desert. This was a material called gypsum, the source of Amana's concrete foundations. If you go to the limestone quarries and keep climbing to the very top of the hills, you'll reach the escarpment on top. Here, the desert wind stings and the sky is vast. Beneath your feet, the ground is littered with an ocean of pebbles and small boulders. This rocky plateau is not much to look at, but beneath the sand, there is a veritable treasure trove of gypsum. When they found a deposit, the workers would clear the sand and topsoil away, using wooden hoes and baskets to move the contents quickly. The sand, pebbles, and boulders were shifted to the side, leaving round depressions in the stone fields, which archaeologists can easily identify. 
Amana gypsum occurs naturally in shallow deposits, a thin layer just beneath the desert surface. The Egyptians working this area, atop the limestone hills, only had to dig a few centimetres into the sand before the white powdery mineral emerged. Once a pit area was identified and clear, the Egyptians began digging, using their hose, or chenenu, to extract the gypsum in soft chunks. The white powdery material came out in bits, which were thrown into baskets or large pots, and then loaded onto donkeys for carrying back to the city. The Egyptians of Amarna needed gypsum to manufacture the mortar, the rudimentary concrete which they used to strengthen building foundations and walls. From these abundant deposits, the workmen of Amarna were able to extract the vast quantities of material needed to build their city. Along with the pottery and the gypsum deposits, archaeologists have also identified some of the workers' camps. Small stone shelters, rudimentary huts, dot the landscape here, and they may have been places where the workers came to rest, sheltering from the wind. Or perhaps they were guard posts. The eastern deserts were a dangerous place, with nomads or bandits hiding away from the Nile Valley. The overseers of Amana sent regular patrols up into the desert, and bands of police or soldiers would search the area for troublemakers, nomads and fugitives. We'll meet those police in a later episode, but it's possible some of their huts are still located in the windy stretches above the quarries. The ancient city of Amarna, Arket Aten, or Horizon of Aten, was constructed in an incredibly short space of time. The builders achieved this thanks to innovative practices, smaller talatat blocks and gypsum concrete as mortar. Using those tools, Akhenaten's overseers, foremen and stonemasons were able to build large structures in great haste. Thanks to their skills, Pharaoh's demands were met at a speed never seen before in an Egyptian city. To make this happen, the ancient workers had to scour their local environment. They went north, locating quarries of limestone and fields of gypsum in the hills near to the city. Exploiting those resources, the workers sent long trains of porters and donkeys back to Amana, carrying load after load of stone blocks and powdery minerals. Their work, dusty, hot and backbreaking is how Amana rose so quickly and in such style. Although their efforts remain largely invisible, they are worthy of our respect, and their accomplishments easily stand alongside those of their forebears. Akhenaten's demands were extreme. He demanded a concentration of labour and material on a scale not seen for generations. Raising Arket Aten, raising Amana, took organisation and exploitation. Exploitation of materials, of people, and of animals. It was an immense challenge, and it would take a heavy toll on the bodies of the workers. A toll that can be seen in their skeletons. These skeletons have been discovered at Amana and excavated by archaeologists. What they reveal, and the lifestyle they indicate, is something we will explore in an upcoming episode. Arket Aten rose quickly and on an impressive scale. The fact that it was accomplished at all speaks to the skill of the builders and the efforts they exerted in service to their pharaoh. 
Although they are largely forgotten today, we can acknowledge them and give them thanks for the legacy they left behind. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.